On May 4th, 1521, Martin Luther was kidnapped by masked men and taken from his own city to hide in Wartburg Castle in a small town of Eisenach. Now, thankfully, these kidnappers were, believe it or not, friends and not foes. They were actually more keenly aware of the danger that Martin Luther's protest put him in, in his own nation, than even Martin Luther was. And so these men kidnapped him and hid him away in a castle to protect his life from execution. And therefore, Martin Luther spent 10 months in exile. And it was a grueling 10 months of isolation. He was very, very sick. And he was still in the middle of his great protest, his reformation. And so he had a lot of inner spiritual turmoil. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I leading people astray? It was an excruciatingly lonely, painful time. Yet, I want to, also, I want to quote from what a famous biographer, Erwin Lutzer, said about this time of exile for Luther. He says this, It was here in isolation that Luther had one of the most productive periods of his life. Amid his doubts, depression, confusion, and insomnia, he feverishly wrote books, pamphlets, and most astoundingly of all, he translated the New Testament into German in just 11 weeks. The history of the Christian church is filled with examples of exile, of heroes being forced into exile. And while these are oftentimes experiences of great suffering, what history tells us is that God usually uses these exiles for great good. David has been living kind of like an exile, for most of 1 Samuel. But in today's text, his exile becomes official. He is officially forced from the borders of Israel to live with his enemies, the Philistines. Would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27, please? We're going to read all of 1 Samuel 27 and then just the first two verses of 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 21, let's begin... In verse 1, and if you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and six hundred men who were with him, to Ashish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Asius at Gath, he and his men, every man with his households, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Ashish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Ashish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Jeshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Ashish. When Ashish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremeliites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. 
And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Ashish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Ashish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Ashish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Ashish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David knows that until God takes care of Saul, he has no other option but to cross the borders of Israel and live among the Philistines. His options are exile or death. And in God's providence, he has chosen exile. And it was God's providence who provided him safety to make the long trip from where they were at, way on the eastern side of Israel, all the way across the country to the western side of Gath. It is there that he found Ashish, lived among him for a while, and he brought with him his entire army and their families, as well as his own family. So this was basically a small town that approached the Philistine king as refugees seeking protection and shelter. And Ashish surprisingly agrees. We don't know why he would agree to do something like this, but there are some speculations we can make to help make it make sense. What would be the political advantage of saving and protecting David? Well, for starters, this could potentially curry favor with uh, Israel on behalf of the Philistines. As we saw in 28, Ashish knows they're preparing for war with the Philistines. And if the country of Israel is divided, you've got pro-David and pro-Saul. Maybe there are still some loyal to David in Israel. And if they see David is on our team, that could be a political and military advantage for us. But additionally, as the text moves on, eventually Ashish gives the whole town of Ziklag to David and his men. And this actually was a huge political advantage for Ashish. Why do we say that? Well, because geographically, Ziklag is very, very, very far south. Most of the action of 1 Samuel between the Philistines and the Israel is all happening in the northern parts of the Middle East. Ziklag is way, way far south, and it's right on the borders of the Amalekites and the Jeshurites, and if you go even further south and to the west, you eventually get into Egypt. So Ziklag is way far south, and it's right on the border of Israel, and it's right on the border of all of these enemy territories, and it's far away from the protection of Gath. It's far away from its own military protection. So this makes Ziklag vulnerable, and we know historically Ziklag was attacked by its enemies constantly. This town was almost always under siege because it was so far south and it was isolated and vulnerable. But now, a small capable army of over a thousand people probably has now occupied Ziklag. So you see how Ashish has sort of used David's military prowess to strengthen his southern border and to bring order and stability back to this town. But even in all of this, we continue to see God's providence in David's life. Because Ziklag's location was a disadvantage for the Philistines, but it actually proves as a great advantage for David. 
because, well, first and foremost, let me just say as a side note, there's actually a fitting irony to all of this in God's providence. Because if you were to read through uh, First and Second Chronicles, if you were to read through uh, Judges and Joshua, you would see that this town of Ziklag is actually part of the inheritance God gave to Israel. And this explains why it's so close to the border of Israel. In other words, David actually owns this city by divine right. We don't know if maybe Israel overtook it and then lost it, or if they just failed to ever take it appropriately. But Ziklag should actually be part of Israel. Politically, it's not. So David, there's kind of this irony where the, the king who's supposed to be reigning over Ziklag is now sort of reigning over Ziklag. But more importantly, Ziklag's location is a huge advantage for David. It's very far from Saul because Saul is in northern Israel. So he's far from Saul, so he has the safety of being distanced from Saul and Saul's army. But he's also far from the Philistine headquarters. He's far from Ashish, which protects him from Philistine oversight. David can kind of roam freely and do whatever he wants, and the Philistines don't really know what he's up to. So this really is a huge advantage for David. And David uses it to his advantage. How? By continuing to live like the king of Israel. He protects his people. He attacks Israel's enemies. He is still living according to his calling. And Ashish is entirely unaware of what he's doing. The only reason Ashish has any idea is because David is purposefully manipulating him. David is taking the spoils of these raids to Ashish and then lying about what he's doing. Saying, Asha says, where'd you get all this? Who'd you raid today? And David would say that he was raiding the tribes of Israel. He would say he was raiding the allies of Israel when he was not doing anything of the kind. So David uses this to his advantage. Now Ashish thinks David is a traitor. He thinks that, oh, there's no way he can go back and live in Israel now that he's fighting against Israel. So Ashish is deceived and he thinks him and David are close, but David is not actually being a traitor. He gets to continue living and producing as he has been called to produce. And isn't this kind of an important reminder about how God's providence usually works? From our vantage point, when we're in the middle of God's story for our lives, it's very hard to understand why God is doing the things he's doing. A lot of times to us, it just seems like my life could be simpler and easier and I just don't know why God is doing to me what he's doing to me. Why didn't God just let David kill Saul in the cave? Couldn't this book really be streamlined? <laughs> Why didn't he just let him kill the sleeping Saul? Why go through all this? For a year and four months in Philistines and having to lie and deceive and all? Couldn't God have just made this way easier? But God's providence almost never makes sense to us in the moment. We're given texts like these to remind us that God does know what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with David. He knows what he's doing in your life. And he even knows what he's doing when he puts us into exile. Because here's the important thing to remember. David is not the only person in Scripture who learned the important lesson of what God can do in exile the hard way. Many of our most important biblical role models learned the goodness of God's providence through exile. Think of the heroes of our faith who all experienced some kind of exile. Abraham, when he was first called, was called to sojourn in a land that was not his home, to pitch tents in a foreign land that would one day belong to him, but he never achieved. Jacob was removed from his homeland for a time being before he could come back. 
Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt, where he would eventually lead there, die there, and his bones would be brought back to be buried with his fathers. And even beyond these individual circumstances of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and David, Israel as a nation, as a corporate people, was no stranger to exile. They first spent an exile in Egypt. And then after that, they had an exile wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then after making their home in the promised land, they would eventually become exiled in Babylon before returning home. We even had a, a really small kind of different exile at the beginning of 1 Samuel with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, that was an important chapter for us when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and was forced to dwell in pagan temples for a time being. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have this important theme of exile coming up over and over and over again. And what that should tell us is that this has messianic repercussions. If this is a theme of the Old Testament, this theme of being exiled, then it should tell us that this is pointing us to Christ in some way. And lo and behold, you read through your New Testament, and Christ himself was no stranger to exile. He experienced different kinds of exiles in more than one way. Early on in his life, they had to flee to Egypt. And they had to become refugees in Egypt, hiding out from Herod. And then God killed Herod, and so they returned back. He had an exilic experience as he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, which was a fulfillment of Israel's exile in the wilderness. And lastly, he even had an exilic experience similar to David's in his own home. Among his own people, he was actually a stranger rejected by them. He was not at home even in his home. That's why he says his famous quotation in Matthew 8:20 that foxes have holes and birds have the air or forgetting birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was a stranger in his own home. So it should be established for us that exile is an important theme of the Bible. It's messianic, and it reveals how often God calls his people into a period of exile before they can inherit their glory. We see how often character is forged in the fires of exile. Exile, in other words, is where God makes men and women out of us. And that is why this theme of exile should be directly applicable to us. Right? This is not just for Jesus. This is not just for David. This is important for us. 1 Samuel 27 is trying to communicate something about living in exile to us. It's an interesting text. God is never mentioned in this text. I, I'll be honest, I really struggled with it this week. Why is this in here? What do we get from this text? There's so many unknowns. God doesn't speak. There's no prophets. God's not even mentioned. There's so many unknowns. But what I really believe is this emphasis on exile is teaching us this important application. This really is actually the thesis of the sermon. What's the big idea? What's the main idea of the sermon? It's simply this. Three words. Embrace your exile. Embrace your exile. The Bible very clearly refers to the Christian life on this side of the resurrection as an exile. We get this from language like in 1 John 2 when we are told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. What's the implication of that verse? That we are in the world but we are not of it. We do not belong to it. 
And this makes sense of what Jesus tells Pilate during his interrogation. When Pilate was interrogating Jesus, Jesus famously told him that his kingdom was not of this world. If you belong to the kingdom of Christ, if you live in Christ's kingdom, if you are a citizen under King Jesus, then you are not a citizen of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Peter tells us that we are awaiting a new home when he says that we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But perhaps the most explicit testimony in the New Testament that we are in fact spiritual exiles living in a world that is not our home comes from Paul in Philippians 3.20 when he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like David, you are in exile. You have been called to live in a place that is not your home. So live like David. So live like David. How? I'm not recommending you go into other towns killing women and children. How is it spiritually, how is it that we model David's exile? What do we learn about David from living in exile? How does David teach us to embrace our exile? Well, I think the text subtly implies two important ways. There are two ways for us this morning to learn to embrace our exile. The first way for you to embrace your exile, here's how to put it into practice. Be productive. Be productive. David in our text is willing to look like a traitor, but he's not willing to actually be a traitor. David might be living in Ziklag, but he is still living like the king of Israel. He is continuing to perform the duties that God has called him to. David is being faithful to obey God and perform his duties. In other words, David and his followers, they get to work. David stays very busy. The the text tells us this was his custom the entire time he was there. He had a day job. They settled in. They didn't give up. They didn't mope around. They didn't lament. They got to work. David only stayed active in Not only did he stay active in fighting, but he was a true politician in this text. Working behind the scenes with the authorities to be manipulative, to be shrewd, to be maybe as innocent as a dove, you might say he may have compromised, but he is definitely being as wise as a serpent. Working very hard not only to fight important battles, but to make sure he is maintaining an important political allegiance. David is is hard at work, working with the authorities that he is now under, working to obey God, protecting his people. David is working hard, being productive. So if you want to embrace your exile, it starts by getting to work. I love this in a more explicit example Keep your marker here. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Turn over a little ways to one of our major prophets. Jeremiah chapter 29. This is is one of my favorite verses, passages. The context here is important. While you flip there, I hope you can hear me. The, Jeremiah 20, this part, portion of this letter was written as a separate letter. It's recording a separate letter that was sent to the exiles in Babylon. So the Jews have already entered into what we call the Babylonian captivity. Babylon has overtaken Israel and forced them into exile. So they are now dispersed and living in a place that is not their home. And so God speaks to them and he gives them marching orders. He gives them some duties. 
How is it that you are supposed to live now that you're no longer home, now that you're not in Israel? What are you supposed to do? And look at, with, look at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Isn't that amazing? Seek the welfare of your city. Be productive. Build houses. Get married. Have lots of kids. That's how you live as an exile. God commands them to make Babylon their home, even though it technically isn't. To enjoy it. To be productive. This is how exiles are called to live. And this is important because far too many Christians think that because we are exiles, they think that being in exile is an excuse to neglect productivity. Take just one example. How often have you heard, if your life is anything like mine, you have heard this over and over and over again. How often have you heard Christians say they don't want to have kids because the world is such a scary place? Things are getting worse and worse. Why would I want to bring children into this world? In other words, I'm in exile here. I don't belong here. Why would I want to have kids? But is that how God commands exiles to live? Or does he not command the exact opposite? Oh, you're exiles? Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of them. The world's getting really, really bad. Sounds like we need more Christians. Have them babies. And it goes beyond, obviously, just having children. He calls them to seek the welfare of the city. This is your home now. It's not your true home. It's not your ultimate home, but it's your temporary home. So make it a good place for you and your kids to live. Don't just accept that it's bad. Fix it. Get productive. Far too many Christians think that because the world is not our home, we have no obligation to fix it. Christians retreat from politics, they retreat from trying to shape the culture, and they focus on their bomb shelters, they focus on their enclaves. Just keep your head down, stay safe, and Christ will come and blow this place up one day. But that's not how exiles are called to live. David didn't hide out in a cave and wait for God to kill Saul. He got to work. He embraced, Ziklag's my home now. I guess I'll embrace it. Being in exile is no excuse to neglect the world that we live in. It's no excuse to not think generationally. Being in exile does not give us permission to live like there is no tomorrow. We are called to sow a social fabric that will make life easy on our children and on our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Being in exile is no excuse to be idle or detached. The welfare of the city is, in fact, our welfare and our children's welfare and our grandchildren's welfare. That's why 
let me just remind you, Roswell is not your home technically. Your citizenship is heaven. Roswell is not your home. But it's your temporary home. It's your current home. So care about it. Invest in Roswell. Make it a place where you and your children and your grandchildren can live in peace and comfort and prosperity. By the way, this is exactly the logic that Paul provides for why, like we did today, we pray for our political leaders. Why do we pray for our political leaders? Paul gives two reasons. One of them is because God can save them. But the first reason he gives, why should we pray for our political leaders? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Does Paul think politics are beyond Christian hope? Does Paul think there's no hope to ever create on this side of eternity a city where it's not so bad? No. Paul thinks it's entirely possible for a Christian culture and their politics and their governing authorities to get along and to make life easy for each other. That's not beyond the scope of possibility. That's why we pray for it. So how do you embrace your exile? Be productive. Get to work. Make this a great city and enjoy it. Seek the welfare of Roswell. But there's a second reason, a second reason, or forgive me, a second way for us to embrace exile. And this really is the foundation to the first one. And that is to be hopeful. Be productive and be hopeful. You see, David is not willing to quit in Ziklag. He's not willing just to give up and lay down and stick his tail between his legs and whimper off into a cave because he believes the Lord will in fact fulfill his promises. David found hope in God even in the valley, even in exile, even when things didn't look good and he wasn't comfortable and he didn't know what God was doing. He was hopeful in God. This is why we're able to get to work. I am calling you today to be optimistic, hopeful Christians. Now, what reasons do you have to be hopeful? Because unlike David, we're not political refugees awaiting a specific king to be killed. So what reasons do we have to find hope in our exile? What reasons do we have to be optimistic even though this life is so hard? Well, the Bible in the New Testament gives us two reasons. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me correct that. It gives us more than two reasons, but I'm going to give you two biblical reasons. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18. Very important verses. If you are suffering, if you are going through a season of suffering right now, you need to memorize these verses. You need to. Second Corinthians chapter four. Or forgive me, I think it's First Corinthians. I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter four. <laughs> okay. Let me just tell you what happened. I turned to not 2 Corinthians 4 and thought I was there. So then I assumed it must be 1 Corinthians 4. I turned to 1 Corinthians 4 and I realized I never was at 2 Corinthians 4. So just to make sure you're awake, okay, we're all awake now. Now actually do go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Yes, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, 2 Corinthians. Yeah. 
2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I believe this gives us two reasons to find hope in exile. Two reasons to find hope when our bodies are wasting away in a world that is not our home. The first reason to find hope is because the sufferings of exile are sanctifying us. The sufferings of our exile are sanctifying us. There's purpose in our exile. There's meaning in our sufferings. All of the trials of living in exile, sin, sickness, pain, death, all of these things we struggle with, they are preparing us for glory. Joseph's exile prepared him to be a great prince. David's exile is preparing him to be a great king. All of Jesus' exiles and sufferings are what prepared him to be a great Messiah. The book of Hebrews says that he was made perfect through suffering. Jesus himself was not ready to be our king and our Messiah and our mediator without a time of fire. Paul reminds us that our sufferings in this life are preparing us for glory. God is using them, working in them and through them, and that should give you some hope in the midst of them. They're sanctifying us. But there, these verses actually provide us with another reason to be hopeful while we are living in a world that is not our home. And the second reason to find hope in God is because the sufferings of exile are temporary. They're temporary. God has promised us our exile is temporary. No matter what you might be going through today, here's what I can promise you. There's probably a lot of answers I don't have, but I can promise you one thing. It will be over one day. It's temporary. And as a matter of fact, your entire life in this world is temporary. That is why Paul was willing to do... This is pretty audacious. You think about some of the horrible things you've gone through. You think about some of the horrible things you read in the news. Really, really horrible, terrible things happen in this world. And yet Paul has the audacity in 2 Corinthians 4, not 1 Corinthians 4, in 2 Corinthians 4, to say that these things are light momentary afflictions. I know it doesn't feel that way, but compared to glory, all your sufferings are a snap, a blink of an eye, because your entire life compared to glory is a snap, a blink of the eye. You are a vapor in the wind. And that, that's not nihilistic. If you're a great sufferer, if you're suffering, that's good news. This will all be over soon. Whether in this life or at the end of my life, this will be over soon. And let's not pretend like this wasn't certainly clear to David. I know the text doesn't explicitly say it, but we cannot read chapter 27 dislocated from what we read last week. 
when David confronted, and David, is, David knows, he has learned his lesson. He knows God is going to fulfill his promise. He knows he's going to be king of Israel one day. He knows God's going to take care of Saul. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know where. But all he knows is God will put me on the throne. So I can be patient and I can know my time in Ziglag is temporary. We're told in hindsight it was a year and four months. He didn't know that. He went there after says He has no idea how long he's going to be there. But he knows he won't be there forever. He knows Ziklag will not be his home forever. He has been called to a temporary exile. And 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that glory is coming. God has made a promise to you in Christ to give you a glory that is beyond all comparison. It's coming. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is going to return. This is all temporary. I don't know when he's going to come. I don't know when you're going to find and reach the end of your life. But I know one thing. No matter what you're going through, it's temporary. We have reason to hope in the Lord because our sufferings are sanctifying us and preparing us for glory and because our sufferings are temporary. So to all you Christians living here in exile in Roswell, New Mexico, and I was just making a joke with Layla as we, we go on a daily walk. We went on our walk yesterday and we walk by the old uh, POW prisoner of war camp where they kept prisoners of war. And I made the joke to Layla that living in Roswell is essentially synonymous with uh, being punished for war crimes. So I know that sometimes living in Roswell feels like more of an exile than living in other places. But I meant that as a joke. I love Roswell. But God has called you to Roswell, whether you like it or not. God has brought you to this place. And it is not your ultimate home. But I would encourage you, while you live temporarily in Roswell, for however many years you have left, embrace your exile. Be productive. Seek the welfare of this city. Let's work for a better future. And we do all of this from a hope that the Lord is preparing us for glory and that he has promised us glory. And he who promised is faithful. So embrace your exile. Be productive. Take hope in the Lord your God. 